My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. In this conversation, I'm speaking with Lisa Clark. Lisa has been teaching body-mind centering for decades and began studying with Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen in the early 80s and offers online embodied learning, both live streaming and recorded classes. In our conversation, Lisa describes the experience of encountering a persimmon. She describes the wonder of a new fruit, a local mythology that surrounds the fruit and the tree as well as describing its flavor. And this conversation felt a little bit like that to me. The encountering of something other and whole and delightful and colorful, flavorful, juicy, and storied with such a rich back history. And in this conversation, Lisa talks about how that form of learning, the kind that begins with experience itself, encounter with something other, something wondrous, the sensations of tasting something new, that is part of how the best teaching happens. So I welcome you into this conversation with Lisa Clark. Thank you so much for meeting with me, Lisa. Pleasure. I'm really grateful. I don't, um, it was Kate Fiello who put us in contact with one another. My dear, dear friend, Kate. Yeah, I'm so glad she did. She kept asking me, she said, would you be interested in doing this? And you two need to have a conversation. And so I thank Kate for bringing us together. I've known her a very long time, and um, she's just an incredible human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, she really is. And she actually invited me to one of your trainings in Chicago about five years ago. Kate was hosting me to do a series of trainings in Chicago. Um, I came twice a year. And each time we chose material that the group wanted to dive into. And we usually work together for two days on a weekend. And we did that for several years. And uh, it was such a lovely way to tap into Chicago and the community there. But we actually met when I was in graduate school in Chicago. When I was doing my master's at the Art Institute of Chicago. And I went there to do my MFA. And this is a kind of funny story. Before I went there, uh, I had this conversation with my teacher, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, and I said, you know, I'm just going to step back from the BMC work, the teaching for a while. I'm just going to go fully into my art degree self for a while. And Bonnie, you know, just smiles and nods her heads as she does all knowingly 
And then I get to Chicago and all of a sudden my phone starts ringing because Bonnie's calling everybody she knows in Chicago and telling them I now live there because I'm work uh, doing my degree and that uh, they should contact me. So before I knew it, <laughs> what I thought would happen turned into something even more wonderful. And that ended up, I began to teach in all the different schools, somatics, body-mind centering, and through that process, I met Kate Fiello. And uh, there's the beginning of our story together. Oh, I love that. That's so wonderful. You're such a good storyteller. Um, so what, do you mind me asking what year this was? When was this? This was, uh, let's see. So it was the late 90s, maybe 1996, 1997, around there. And when did you first kind of start with the body mind centering work with Bonnie? Um, you know, that my early life, I kind of say my early life, I was trained as an artist and um, went to art school. And that was really my direction and my field and my passion. And I loved being a working artist. So after I had finished undergraduate school, art was going through this tremendous shift, I would say. This was happening in the 70s, the early 80s. You know, people weren't working in the studio or the museum. They were going out on the street. And for the first time, we were seeing all sorts of experiential art everywhere. And um, I was amazed by it, just totally amazed by it and went searching for it. I was going to school at Penland School of Arts and Crafts in North Carolina, and I met one of my earliest mentors, Paulus Berenson, who was an Alexander teacher living in Penland, which is an artist community in the North Carolina mountains. And every afternoon, Paulus would have a quote, movement class, basically we laid on the floor, you know, so, and Paulus would always say that the arts are an embodied movement form. Actually, he didn't use the word embodied at that point. It was too early for that word. It's a movement form. And thus began this whole discussion. What we were talking about was embodiment. We just didn't have that language then. So, that's where I was tuned in as a young artist. And after I finished my undergraduate degree, I was interested in continuing to train, looking for ways to train my creativity and my body as a working performance artist. And that's where I came across my first body mind centering class with Mariska Vigos. And it was just a poster on the wall in the food co-op in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I had no idea what this woman was talking about, but I was like, I want to do that. And possibly it was developmental movement, possibly, right? So I called her out of the blue and um, ended up, she was just teaching on her porch <laughs> in her house. <laughs> And this was um, early 80s, probably 1982. And um, that's where I started learning body-mind centering. And I was completely hooked. So uh, by 1986, uh, Bonnie had started her first formal training in Amherst, Massachusetts, which was the practitioner program. Uh, 
It began in 1986. It was four summers or four years long, and I began the program. And I went for the first summer, and I ended up moving to Amherst. I left North Carolina, moved to Amherst, so I could be around her teaching all the time. Um, because besides the summer program that she was running, she also taught at the local school of ballet. Um, there was also a tremendous amount of contact, improvisation, and improvisational movement being taught in Amherst and Northampton, Massachusetts. I was introduced to authentic movement at that time. So it was like a hotbed of conversation in this very young field. I don't even know what we would have called it then. Very experiential, process-oriented. It spoke to me as a young artist because I was already process-oriented. I had been trained to work with materials in a studio for hours on end and be disciplined. So for me, it was just sort of dropping the materials, <laughs> whatever they were, paint, canvas, clay, I mean, whatever it was, and... Now I just had my body was the canvas and space and time and gravity. And I don't know, I was so ready to hear that language and move into that. And you know what? It also was group oriented. I experienced being an artist as very solo driven. It was an epiphany for me to move into creativity, a creative space that was happening in the moment and it was shared by many bodies. And that I so loved, loved, loved. There was, there was the ability to have a rich creative process oneself while being conscious of a community. Yes, totally. And the way BMC was taught and experienced in those years, we would have an experience in a room with many people. And then there would be a, a processing moment where we would sit and we would share our experience. And that is how we build, built the language. It's how we built uh, the information. And at first there were no notebooks, not much was written. And so all those things started to be written down, which eventually formed the notebooks, which eventually, which were the training notebooks for the training programs. You know, so it was like going from the ocean to a river to stream, to lakes, to ponds, as far as watching the pedagogy and the curriculum develop, which eventually became the different programs of Body, Mind, Centering. Wow. And it also feels, as I'm hearing you talk, that it went from the most uh, organic, uh, present, experiencing and sharing to uh, almost like a research process of beginning to see patterns and themes and developing first an oral process around the pedagogy that eventually got written down, but it was, a, it was a training that was experiential driven, that was verbal process driven. Absolutely, it was, well said. Um, 
there's so few things in our world that allow that. Most of it is like, here's the book. <laughs> here's the training. Do it, here's the steps. Do it like this. And Bonnie was anti that. So it takes your nervous system or the, I, you know, everybody, you have to get used to sitting there and listening, witnessing where is your attention, um, being open to feeling the mind of the room, feeling into the material, the body system, the experience. So mind became a big part of it. I mean, I felt like she, that body of work, um, it was, I'll reflect on something you said, it was research driven. Bonnie is a researcher. And, and once she gets one thing, she's on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. so you were just sort of pulled along with her inquiries, but we were all creating the material together, though she was sort of driving the bus. <laughs> there, was, there was a trust that within that collective soup <laughs> together uh the experiences could be described named heard in a way that would begin that eventually built a scaffolding of understanding about what there there's way more than we could um excavate in our time together today but but looking at all of the systems of the body whether it's skeletal or it's breathing or it's even um i think the course that i took with you we went back to it was like fetal um memory and uh, maybe just like learning about our um our spine and the relationship this is one of the things i remember really deeply is the relationship between the spine and the the center as opposed to when people think of the spine oh it's on the back of the head no <laughs> let's really understand from a body perspective where our skeletal structure lives in our bodies and my experience of learning with you was so spacious you carried you transmitted that quality of research into the learning experience so that as I was sitting there, my brain went from seeking, oh, uh, what should I be learning right here? <laughs> to paying attention to my own spine and inquiring of that experience, what should I be learning here? <laughs> And in that also, I you came over at one point and I was just doing this very simple, like moving from child's pose, but finding a yield through my back, between my legs, and then yielding into the crown of my head. And you came over and you, um, I think you might have touched me, but like, it, you know, it was it was very, very gentle and, and but it was kind of cues of like actually here and pay attention here. And my relationship between my head and my tail changed that day. And I went home and I struggled to talk about it. You know, yeah. 
I just mm-hmm. kind of was walking through my through my life, looking around at everyone going, I wonder if they connect their head and their tail. <laughs> <laughs> they ever connected their head and tail? Probably not, because I had had this amorphous, um, timeless experience yeah. of my own my own body. And um, so, yeah, I just wanted to reflect back on how my experience resonates with what you're describing of the pedagogy and the research process. Mm-hmm. Yes. I remember back from how you're describing it. It sounds like we were in spinal yield and push, the developmental pattern or that stage of creating the central axis where we're orienting a head tail, you know, relationship, you know, and it, that is preverbal. Like it's so, if you really go into that state, if you're able to do that, into that space that's being held for you to go, it's a preverbal experience. So trusting that, I mean, where else do you get that in life? And then coming out and having to catch up with your adult self, it's like, re-remembering this early state but not through your mind it's really through your cells your tissues the memories there and it that's really common we can't find words so we have to trust that state and i think the world tells us not to trust that state correct and when you enter into that uh, to use a word that Emily Conrad would have used, the continuum, the continuum of developmental, the neurocellular repatterning movement, you've entered a different dimension inside yourself. It's magical. I find it magical. You've mentioned a couple of times being an artist, and there's a parallel there. You know, there's a nonverbalness to creative process. Maybe not if you're a writer, but if you're if you're a right brain um, creator, it there is a necessary yield into the unknown, into a pre-verbal state from which something arises that you can't plan ahead for. <laughs> um, well said. Very. I found them very similar, you know, like I had been trained already for what we were entering in BMC, even though it was teaching me so many new things. Yeah, where does our creativity come from? Like the act of creativity. I don't even know if art's taught that way anymore, but I was. I was taught to kind of move into that space and trust that something would arise authentically. And I'm just pausing here because it it is the same thing we were doing, exploring embodiment. There's a trust that something will arise mm-hmm. and that there's a uh, wisdom. The image that came up when you were talking about the ocean to the river um, was was first like an evolutionary one, you know, where we all came from the... <laughs> the ocean and that's like maybe that's part of what it is there's through the tissues and through 
is this access back into ancestry. <laughs> I find that there. I find that possibility there. You know, what we have learned, where we've journeyed in the body systems and in the neurocellular movement patterns, and even embryology in body-mind centering, we've learned that it's all, we're all of it, you know, all at once, <laughs> all the time. How do you come to terms with that? You know, how do you have a conversation about that? I was just uh, finished a course, teaching a course, uh, the dynamics of breathing. And when Bonnie and I were discussing, you know, the curriculum for the course, I'm always learning, like it never stopped. I might've started working with Bonnie in the early eighties, but it, it's ongoing because we have this ongoing relationship because I'm a director of two programs. So I'm deep in the teaching, the pedagogy, the moving, but the material keeps growing is my point. It never gets stale. It never gets, um, you know, you're just going to read it in a book like that, right? So my point is that here, we were talking about the state of internal breathing and external breathing, and we really go, we are internal respirers in the early parts of our life before we become external breathers. And she said, we also were pre-breathers. I said, what does this term mean? And she said, so there is a stage before internal respiration where we are pre-breathers. We're nothing but resonation and vibration, and we're not in form, but we are breathing. We are pulsing. We are expanding, condensing. We know everything. And slowly we come into form and more form and more form. And each time a new type of breath develops to support the form, and then we become our adult selves. And we are both internal and external breathers, but we hold the memory of being a pre-breather existence, right? So that is the holding of who we are. And then also knowing that we're everything at once, where we came from, where we've gone, where we could be going in the future. It is a huge picture that is taught through a body of work. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really powerful and beautiful and yeah. And we, and we learn it by journeying deeper into self. These aren't concepts held outside of ourselves. What I just explained to you, the immensity of that, holding that perspective, every time you work with someone, every time you teach somebody, every time we run a program that we're holding that vastness and which, which way will we enter? We have this huge timeline with when to enter in, but we enter in through our bodies and our experience. And that's what's so amazing to me. We might even learn, you know, I've been a meditator and a yoga practitioner almost my entire life. It's the same concepts I learned there. But with Bonnie, I found they were arising out of the human experience. They weren't something set outside of myself to achieve and to get there. 
it's why it hooked me. I felt like it explained uh, many other things that I loved and practiced that were much more mysterious because of the way they were being taught. Mm. Yeah, the um, the learning arising, the the trust that um, the teacher is there within, and that the quality of space that is held, time that is held, affords access to many, many layers of learning. And like you're saying, even talking, even talking about it, we are describing like one piece of the elephant, right? <laughs> My experience, I'm a, I'm a dance movement therapist. And so um, immediately what comes up for me is kind of like attachment and the holding environment of the mother, which I'm sure you get a lot <laughs> from which these patterns they're held in the consciousness of the loving caregiver and the baby moves oscillates between the exploration of these systems ancient and present and the experience of being observed and known and seen by another in the present moment validating all of that work um so there's also that um, experience of being with another living, breathing, being vibrating. Mm. Yeah, that you, you you don't get from a book. This is this is a transmission. This is a an experience. Yes, and all those years, I would watch Bonnie hold the space for everyone in that state. I watched it again and again and again. And she held it for everybody in that room, which is a remarkable thing to experience. And um, so generous, so generous. And it taught me so much about being a mother, how to be a mother, really, really prepared me for motherhood and supported me all through keep supporting me as I raise my daughter and you know she's a young adolescent you know the witnessing the being present the holding of space to watch someone develop it's all there so rich so rich it is so rich um I'd like to ask the question that I ask all of my interviewees if that's okay and that is how is embodiment to you? It's everything. <laughs> I would just say it's like, it's life. It's the fullness of moving into life in the present moment. And some days we're, we're fully there and some days we're half there and some days we don't want to go there at all. <laughs> so it's that freedom. It's like a it has a range, it's living, it's alive. And this is what embodiment is to me. It's about coming into the full fullness of my human experience. Yeah, I just want to become more human, more available, more present, 
That is embodiment to me currently. And, you know, for so many years I worked with embodiment and body mind centering and movement and in studio spaces on the floor. And I would say at this time of my life, it's, I still continue to do that. Uh, but I've moved it, you know, I don't need a floor to be it anymore. <laughs> I've moved it out. I'm, I'm looking out my window right now while we're talking and I'm looking at my meadow and I'm looking at my orchard and I'm looking at my gardens. And I, I feel for me, the process of embodiment is like moving out and just being it with everything around me that's growing and alive. And that's the direction just on a personal level I've grown into it. Like it doesn't need people anymore. <laughs> it can have people, but it is, it's this everything around me, the trees, the meadow, the plants, the sky today, the birds, the wildlife. This is where it's taking me. It's so curious. You know, in the pandemic, we think about how did you spend your time during the pandemic? And I was pretty much quarantined on my little farm. And I, I thought, well, where's my curiosity going to go? In my own little universe, in my own body every day? Yes, I did my practices, but I'm, you know, I spent my time studying like how many species of goldenrod are there in my meadow? Can I identify all of them? Can I recognize and witness them? Can I see them through the seasons? What birds love them? How many species do they pollinate with and support my own huge ecosystem out here that my body is connecting with? You know, so when you ask me what is embodiment to me, it has become something so big at this point. Bonnie teaches us that we learning through this process, we're learning about self, to be with self, to be with other and then to be in our environment. So I, I've been so willing the last couple of years to just move everything I know, just and be present in my environment. What's happening? What's changing? So much to say about that. That's moving to me. It's moving to hear that, you know, some of the teaching still happens within a studio, but for you, you're finding the way that it actually lives in every day. You're allowing the experience of all of your training to infuse how you take in the world. It feels hopeful. Yes. I like how you, you know, you said that it's, I have to find hope because we are at a really interesting pinnacle moment in humanity. Um, I would also say I've been working in this field for 40 years now. It's, it's been a while. Each decade had its, you know, where I was, where I, where I was studying, what I was interested in, researching, etc. So I think it's so interesting to come into 60, my early 60s, and um, this is where I've come to all of that previous still, I love that interaction and teaching and working that way. But um, 
I knew that one of my goals was I wanted an embodied environment that I live in 24 seven. That was one of my goals. And so I actually designed and created a house that is embodied based. <laughs> yes, I should guess I should share that. Yes, I really was, wow. as I looked toward aging, I was like, I would like to have that experience. What is an embodied house to me, to this person? What would it feel like? What would be the materials? What would be the rooms like? What would be the height of the ceiling? What would be the shape of the house? And what environment landscape would it sit in? So I had to reach deep inside my own process to come up with some answers and then to do it. And so for me, it was uh, a certain house, my studios in my house, all the doors slide open into like a big loft space practically. And the house sits in a huge acreage of meadow. It's part of an old farm. And um, with a lot of horizontal width in every direction, you can, every room you can walk out onto a porch and merge immediately into the landscape. And when you look out the windows, the landscape moves right in to the home. And I feel like, well, that's sort of my invited, my embodied environment that supports my, who I am, my organism. But again, <laughs> I would say everything I learned previously taught me how to do this. It used my design background and my art background also. Um, so that is what embodiment is to me currently. Embodiment itself is an evolving thing and that um the your artistry has always woven itself into your embodiment it sounds like and as you created this home there was a relationship between the imagination and the creative process and tuning into the organism that is you within an environment to create something Wow. I kind of want to come over. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome if you find yourself on this coast to come over and see me. Yeah, it's um it's the you're, you're tuning into self, right? So the house has a relationship with its environment and the persons living inside the house. So again, it's back to self, other and something even larger, our environment, our world, our politics, you know, walking our talk in embodiment, putting it into action, you know, sensing, feeling, responding, action. There's embodiment in its full three-dimensionality, right? We just don't stay in the studio all day looking in. I mean, at some point, Oh, I know. this is my opinion. I think we at some point that you're so infused with it, it's informing how you take that out into the world. It's deeply political, I think, to spend time with the body, to keep coming back to self, self in relationship to earth, gravity, gravity, space, time. You know, that's really being present 
no matter what age you are, where you are in your life. And then that doesn't stop when you leave your studio floor. I take it into my kitchen. I, I take it into my friendships. I take it out into my meadow. <laughs> you know, we're all in relationship. Alignment. You know, I always say to my yoga students, I say, alignment, what's alignment? Well, it's relationships between things. And that's organic and changing and ever present. And it's never the same. So I refer back to what you said. It's like, and it's always changing. Yeah. Then the alignment for one organism is ever changing and the alignment between organisms is ever changing. And part of that is connected to our temporal roots <laughs> and growth and change over time, aging, development. Because I think back on the story that I told of when I left that uh that session and I was I was in a preverbal state and I'd had an experience that felt very nurturing organizing aligning with myself in a way that brought brought my own spine into connection so I could feel my alignment differently um and yet feeling very much like oh I don't know how to bridge this world <laughs> And I totally hear you that this is this is a deeply political act to value the voice of the body, to provide spacious attention, to believe on some level in the abundance of what is the abundance in if we are if we attune. Yes, there's so much information. There's so much to be learned. There's so much comfort and pleasure to be found. But we live in a system that demands disconnect, that calls people out of connection over and over and over through trauma, through, um, through our technologies that are, you know, just capturing the attention and moving it away from the, um, that quality that we've we've talked about throughout this, which is sort of a, a an incubation or a um, spaciousness that allows um, for those relationships of self, other, and environment. When we're under that pressure, oftentimes the only thing we can do is kind of contract into self defensively mm -hmm. i ask this question sometimes you know and it's not for everybody this question it's um i'm just not willing to disconnect anymore i'm not willing to do that i can at this point i feel the fragmentation that begins when i disconnect and i'm just gotten better over time at spotting it catching it in myself, catching it in others. Um, and I'm just not willing to do it anymore. So that takes 
a commitment to, you know, I, there's some things I just don't do anymore because they can't do them. Yes. Or I, I spend a lot of time at home in my meadow or spend a lot of time doing other things that support me and nurture me because they, they keep me in that live stream constantly. That's it. Keeping me in the live stream. And sometimes, you know, things do fragment us when we go out there go out in the world, we do our work, we do go to the grocery store, whatever we're doing. But can we self-regulate? Can we, do we have the tools to, you know, connect back in, find source again? And it takes some big trust. Yeah, it makes me think of the, <clears throat> the, yo the yogis who um, go in the caves. <laughs> I knew that's where you were going into the caves. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Going, but how about, yeah. But I always loved these yogis and yoginis who, um, they were family based. How about all the ones, many more, I believe, that were actually in community, were mothers, had families, had jobs, and they were doing their practice within that reality. So not disengaging, right? But it's the work by going into that again and again, that humanness. It's real. The homesteaders. I always loved that, the homesteaders, mm -hmm. that it was through humanness and relationship that we worked through our suffering. We worked through our disconnect, our fragmentation, our dualistic nature. <laughs> and I loved, you know, Bonnie as an example, as a mother, a wife, a researcher she was such a great example in that way you know from the moment I had my daughter she brought my daughter into the classroom as her children were always there um she wouldn't even let me leave my daughter with my husband or you know she'd say no she belongs in the classroom right there with us all the time um very grateful very few teachers would do that correct the spaces that are inviting to children in that way are commuting, communicating a valuing of what can be um, gained, learned by mm -hmm. being with someone newer. Mm -hmm. But not all, not all, just to come from the adults. That, that, you know, in development, you get to see some of the pieces that some of us may be trying to relearn, like my, my tail. <laughs> you really see it in a baby. Yes. And in those early years in the 80s in body, mind centering, Bonnie always brought children and their parents into the classroom, into our classes, so we could observe the children while she worked with them while she worked with the parents. That was a big part of the early days of the training. So we really got to see it. We just didn't do it ourselves. We were seeing it in the children and Bonnie would be explaining it over and over and over again. 
And it took me years to figure out what she was saying, what she was seeing, what was she was seeing. There, there it is. The observation of hanging around enough years to actually watch her again and again and finally go, oh, I think I finally saw what she's talking about. Again, the trust in the process. Then we'd get on the floor, then we'd do it. We'd do what you were talking about, our, our spinal movements. We'd feel our experience. Then there's something about that that lets you to see it in others. So there is this back and forth. Can I observe it and see it in others? Can I also feel it in myself and understand it there? Inner, outer, inner, like they were constantly mixed up in the trainings. There's something about that, right? You know, that um, teaches us as teachers to be in a room and to see what we're seeing and be present with it and also feel it in ourselves because we've been there. We know it pretty much. And there's the transmission part. If you've been there, then your transmission, your, your transmission is authentic. That mindfulness transmission is setting the resonance or the tone for the space for everyone to enter into it because they might have never entered into that before. They might not have ever felt what it feels like to be in the skeletal system or to be in a developmental pattern. They didn't have the opportunity. But as long as you're holding that transmissional space, they can enter through the door can't they? They can get a glimpse. They might not know cognitively yet where they'd been, but you've held it for them until they reclaim it in themselves, the reclaiming process. And sometimes we have to fully let go of knowing anything. I don't know what's going on in this moment, but somehow my body knows what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's part of like digging up, like from the bottom up. Sometimes we go top down, but sometimes it's really harvesting from bottom up. And if you've been taught in a top-down system, that's not so easy to let go of what we're so sure of. Oh, absolutely. I was thinking just <clears throat> how my experience, I know I've only had that one weekend with you, Um but right away, there was a modeling that was happening of your connection with your own body in a way that involved deep listening. And you were willing to allow everyone to wait as you listened, right? There was space that you afforded your own process of settling into internal inquiry. And that was a modeling. And then it was also transmitted in the spaciousness of the exploration. There were no answers given. <laughs> there was no quiz. It felt to me like an invitation to slow down enough to listen. There you go. The slowing down. <clears throat> Excuse me. The slowing down. The making space. And, you know, as I'm sitting here right now, we were talking about the, the yogis in the, in the mountains versus the yogis in the, the householders and the yoginis who were, who were mothers and had all those responsibilities. And 
I'm, I'm sort of feeling into this idea that it's one thing to slow t- things down when we cut everything out. It's another thing to have the robustness within to be able to slow down oneself with others in life. Mm-hmm. That is not adequately taught. And yet that is probably one of the most important things we can do in social relationships is spaces where we model tuning in deeply, giving ourselves space to really think and feel into something. What is the life stream in this moment? And how do I connect with all of these other relationships in my life, whether it's my environment, in which I'm just one of a tiny part of the larger picture. I get to be just one of the animals in the picture. Or it's a relationship with a, with a, with a daughter or a spouse or a cat. <laughs> um, it feels like a life skill of training the ability to set pace to set our pace and to trust our pace. Oh, I love all of that. Everything you just said. I, I love all of that. Setting your pace. It takes a long time to come into that, doesn't it? To give yourself permission to do that. It takes a long time. You know, one of the things I learned in studying the body systems in body-mind centering and I'd have to count them, what's up to date. But let me just say, I I think we have at least 10, 12 body systems that we go into. I realized after time that each system had its own sense of time and own sense of space. And sometimes its own language, its own way of expressing itself, feeling itself, expressing coming into action. And once I understood that, I realized there's multiple, like there's multiple ways to be in time at any moment. It's never just one way. And we get on this linear time, right? And linear time is quite the invention. It's an invention. So what's body time? That would be the first question. What's your overall sensation of your overall physiological tone in this moment? And how is that affecting the timing you need in this moment? Or holding time for a client or holding time for a group of people who are learning. And then once you're willing to kind of see that there's like, you can jump off that linear timeline, you realize like, wow, lots of things have different timelines out there. Circadian rhythms, right? Birds, I mean, wow, they're on a completely different rhythm. When the sun rises, when the stars come up, when the moon comes up, and that's something larger. But at the same time, our brain is registering all of that. Our senses are registering it. Our glands are registering that larger sense of self and time and past and present and future. If we're willing to kind of put that linear to the side, sometimes I know we got to get stuff done. I, I, I get that. 
but that's also existing at the same time. So where is your in-attention? What is your intention? <clears throat> I'm really enjoying talking to you, Lisa. This is wonderful. Me too. Yeah. It's really great to talk about these things, have someone to talk with and share uh, a really common language and way of being. Yeah, as I... As I think about my future in terms of dance therapy, I'm I'm really wanting to pull away from um, the talking and into the body and into movement and into what you're describing of um, modeling and holding space for that knowing and that vitality um, that comes through movement in the body. That's a part of this conversation that I'm really appreciating and that there's transmission that can happen in modeling how I relate to time. I want to bring that into my consciousness. Um, it, it strikes me as wise. <laughs> you know, the wise ones, they have a different sense of time. They're not rushed, you know, like you walk among the trees. They're not rushed. <laughs> they're not they have a real different sense of how long they'll be here those trees you know how long they're going to be there and how many times they'll see the sunrise and it's just way different way different you know oh you know this is kind of an aside you know once I get talking I see relationships between everything <laughs> I recently um I just ate one of my first persimmon, which is hard to believe. I And we grow persimmons here where I live. And a friend has a, an orchard of persimmons. And I went and I got a big box of several different types. And she was excited and she took a pen knife and she said, we're going to cut the persimmon open. And the folklore is here that a persimmon can tell you by how it looks inside what kind of winter we're going to have. Have you heard this before? This folk tale. Oh, yeah. Okay. So she opened it up and she looked at by how the seeds were arranged or the fruit. I was like, how are you again? What are you seeing? And can you explain it to me? But now it's not a body. It's a persimmon body. So we're looking and she's explaining what she sees there. That's handed down knowledge from her family, right? How do you read a persimmon for the weather? But I was so intrigued then how does a persimmon know? How does this persimmon, as it grows its fruit, because the persimmon tree wants to survive, correct? And it's going to drop its fruit and it has its seeds, its future in there. So it'll actually create the matrix of the, each piece of fruit in a certain way to survive that year's winter. This was the guess in my head. And then I went home and of course I Googled it and I read everything I could. And it was pretty parallel. I nailed it. Like, okay, so if we're talking about trees <laughs> and their sense of time, I'm thinking of this persimmon tree. And, you know, they get quite tall. They, you know, 40, 50 feet, they can live a very long time. And then every year they're determining their destiny through their fruit and their seeds. And it's kind of a, a miracle to come in relationship with. <laughs> It's a wonderful story. 
How did it taste? Unbelievable. I mean, I can't believe I've missed out on persimmons for 60 years. <laughs> you have to let them really ripen, but it is so, it's like a, you know, a tropical fruit. That's what I want to say to you. It's so delicious that I will definitely plant some persimmon trees on my property. Now they may never come into fruitation in my lifetime, but that's okay. You know, someone else will enjoy them and the birds will enjoy them and the insects and, and how wonderful, you know, every time I plant a tree on my property, I'm always thinking that way. Like, I won't get to see this oak get 50 feet, 80 feet tall, but somebody will, and somebody will enjoy it. And I don't mean humans. I mean, the whole environment out there gets to benefit from that tree I planted. You know, it's like coming to terms, like we get old and we won't always be here. And we will always be here. <laughs> and we always will, right? Yeah, you just get to be, we get to be part of the earth and the growing things. With the whole ecosystem, you know, the bees and the pollinators and the whole thing. So there we go, the embodiment of everything around us. You know, we have to be able to see it and understand it. I really want to um, ask you about some of your classes some of your offerings absolutely so if you go to my website uh we have the school for body mind centering yoga immersion series which is all online so everything's taught live stream and recorded and then um you have this huge body of work in a recorded style with lifetime access so we have uh, the different body systems, the neurocellular patterns, as you were saying, the dynamics of breathing. And I have about, I do three to four courses a year online. So people can look for those. I also teach weekly classes online. So everything's online currently on that website. People can drop in for an hour and a half during the week and we go on an exploration together through our bodies and then I am teaching in person in Taiwan I'm the co-director of the SME program in Taiwan Taitong Taiwan and I go there two times a year to work to teach which I absolutely love uh, traveling and being in that part of the world oh I'm so curious as to whether um cross-culturally you're noticing differences oh my goodness we'll have to do another interview that's <laughs> what i that's what i love is i love you know bringing body mind centering this work to a whole different we have to take in consideration and a whole different culture a whole different language the language is so exciting we teach in English, which is simultaneously translated into Mandarin. We also have teachers that teach in Mandarin and it's simultaneously translated into English. But right there, in that moment, we're so spacious because oh, something I might say, there might not be a word that exists in Mandarin 
or vice versa. And we'll actually pause and the whole room will get into the conversation of the language. And in this way, I feel we are moving the language along of this body of work. It's so exciting. <laughs> Another conversation. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And bodies very different culturally, historically. And yeah, I find that very exciting. Wow, it's amazing. I love it. Is there anything that else that you wanted for this interview <laughs> to be heard? Oh, I feel full. I feel like we touched into so many wonderful areas. I feel very full and I thank you for just your spaciousness and holding. And then also you have a fabulous ability to take in what you're hearing, digest it and reaffirm it, like reflect back from your experience, which keeps that conversation rich and growing and going on. And your language might be slightly different than mine, but we kind of grow it together. I thank you for that. It's really an art. And an honor, such an honor to play in conversation with you today. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. It's so important. Thank you to Lisa for the conversation, the kind words, the generous spirit that so nourished my heart. Thank you to Josie Rothwell for the opening music and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing music. Thank you to my listeners, my patrons, and to the Embodied Education Institute of Chicago for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you.